Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Lincoln Leeds and Law. This is our fifth Lincoln Leeds series. And uh, just to introduce myself, I'm going to be chairing today's event. Uh, I'm Heather Mann. I am reading my detail here in history at Lincoln College. And I'm also academic rep for the Lincoln College MCR. Uh, for those of you who are from Lincoln, we've put together this series of events, one to run each week this term, to bring together different Lincoln students, Lincoln fellows, and Lincoln alumni to discuss different topics. And I'm very excited that this week we're going to be discussing should misogyny be a crime. Uh, this has been debated in the United Kingdom since June, when Nottinghamshire Police Force decided to make crimes directed towards women simply because they are women hate crimes. And two weeks ago, Scotland announced plans to do just the same. So this evening, each panelist is going to have 15 minutes to address this question, followed by a short discussion. And if you are social media savvy, the Twitter hashtag for tonight is hashtag Lincoln Leads. Our first speaker, is Dr. Barbara Havakova. Barbara is a Shaw Foundation Fellow in Law here at Lincoln College. Before coming to Lincoln, she had posts at Balliol College and Emmanuel College in Cambridge. She obtained her DPhil from Oxford for her research in gender and law under and after state socialism, the example of the Czech Republic, and teaches feminist jurisprudence to undergraduates and contributes to the BCL course on comparative equality. Barbara is also an advisor on gender law to the Czech government and to the Czech Prime Minister. Thank you, Heather, for the introduction. So, although I'm a lawyer, I'm not going to give a very legal talk, so hopefully that is going to be everybody. The short answer to the question, should misogyny be a crime, I think, is yes, some. As a lawyer and the first speaker, I think maybe some definitions are in order, so I'll do that first, and then I'll also ponder or argue that law probably needs to react to more than misogyny, and perhaps also through more tools than just criminal law. In the second part of my talk, if I have the time, hopefully I will, um, I'll look at the most common counter-argument to criminalizing misogyny, which I think comes from the freedom of speech. Uh, so in terms of definition and the wider view, we know that women face all kinds of socioeconomic disadvantage, sociocultural denigration, and are disproportionately targets of violence. Not all of this, I don't think, is attributable to misogyny. It might be useful to distinguish between three different states of mind, misogyny, sexism, and gender bias. Misogyny, we could define as hatred, as active dislike of women, as ill will, if you want a more legal, Philosophical technical definition is the malicious choosing of evil for women because they're women. Many instances of abuse, be it on the streets or online or in the public space more generally, will be rooted in misogyny, will be rooted in this hatred. Um, the, the motivation will be to put women into their, into their place, to drive home the message that women don't belong into the public space. Uh, to attack their feeling of safety and of belonging. Sexism, I think, is, if you want, a slightly milder state of mind. Uh, it could be defined as either not seeing women as fully human or not recognizing women's attributes, needs, or interests as fully human or as equal to those of men. 
If misogyny is hate, sexism is more like a belief in the inferiority of the feminine, of women as a group, or of individual women. Misogyny and sexism will often be intentional, or at least negligent. The person acting will often be conscious that they have this belief. They might even be quite proud of it, uh, and they'll know that they're acting uh, with this motivation. And they'll want to act that way very often. Gender bias, on the other hand, centers around stereotypes and prejudice, and it will often be unconscious. Um, it is very much rooted in androcentrism. Um, the fact that we unreflectively take the male as the norm, that we take male perspective on things. So if misogyny is hate, and sexism is the belief uh, of inferiority of women, uh, the gender bias is just not caring enough to know better, not checking your privilege, and not putting yourself into the shoes of others. So gender bias is like less likely to be intentional than misogyny or sexism. It will at most be negligent. It will be the negligence of not exercising appropriate care to inform yourself, to overcome stereotypical or prejudiced thinking. So there are several reasons why I think that these distinctions are useful. <laughs> The first is that misogyny, as just defined, is obviously the most egregious, most obviously disturbing type of state of mind, and often finds expressions in the most offensive actions or words. But it is also perhaps the one most easily identifiable and denounceable. So even people who do not particularly care, for example, to see women in positions of power uh, in politics or in the workplace, might be against misogyny and expressions of misogyny, be they, be they physical and in, in, in taking the forms of violence, or be they verbal, verbal abuse or harassment on the streets. So there, that's why I wanted to bring your attention to the sort of slightly less egregious, less obvious states of mind, because they can cause as much damage as misogyny. Uh, and they can be harder to identify and to oppose. Uh, for example, sexism will often take the form of glorifying women as mothers while subtly undermining them as decision makers politicians, uh, managers, etc. And fighting gender bias means telling people that they need to peel off layers of gender socialization and challenge certain of their beliefs. Um, so, so in a sense, identifying opposing targeting sexism and gender bias might be more difficult. Where does law fit into this? Law obviously does not address states of mind. It addresses actions, it addresses words. So criminal law is the branch of law, perhaps most concerned with one's state of mind, in the sense that it requires intent or at least negligence uh, on the part of the perpetrator. Um, it is therefore, I think, quite appropriate that it should address the actions such as violence or speech such as abuse, which have misogynistic intent and which are the most obvious and egregious. Criminal law has two further special qualities which are of relevance here. One is that it targets behaviors which are considered to be offensive and harmful to society as a whole, not just to the individual, or it's not an individual matter. The state protects itself. And it also does so through public prosecution, as we know. So that's the institutional expression of that. The individual woman would not be required uh, to bring an action herself. This is both an advantage and a potential disadvantage. It is an advantage, for example, in the cases of street harassment and abuse, which where the stand of the origin of this talk, I think, it means that you don't have to go to the police and you know, let them know that this happened to you and instead of worrying 
uh, about bringing a case. At the same time, it means that prosecuting is not in your hands as the woman. It is in the hands of the police, for better or worse. For better sometimes because uh, you might not be in a position, especially in cases of domestic violence, for example, um, to bring uh, a case yourself. At the same time, it can also mean that what you want gets overridden by public prosecution and the police. For example, in, in cases of rape, many cases in the UK in the past few years would have been dropped because uh, police and prosecutors would have evaluated victims as not, as not credible enough, too weak for cross-examination. So that's uh, speaking about criminal law. Uh, other branches of law might be helpful in targeting the other types of state of mind, where you don't need intent or negligence. For example, anti-discrimination law will apply whether or not you're discriminated intentionally or negligently. It doesn't care about the discriminated state of mind. There's an objective liability. So why did I sort of do this mapping or classification to begin with? Partly to say that misogyny, I think, is just one of several things that we have to care about in relation to women, women's inequality, uh, and gender hierarchies. Partly to also say that criminal law is just one of the tools that we have at our disposal. But partly also to make the point that I think misogyny and crime in this sense are actually quite well matched because we're targeting the most serious and egregious uh, state of mind and actions with arguably the strongest type of legal tool that we have at our disposal. Now to the second uh, topic that I wanted to touch on uh, are the counter arguments uh, against criminalizing acts motivated by misogyny. The counter-arguments that you hear are about the right to offend, they're about you know, rails against political correctness gone mad, um, arguments of slippery slope, well with this end, soon we won't be able to say anything in the public space. They're arguments out of an understanding of freedom of speech. I argue that it is a particular understanding of freedom of speech, and that when opponents of the criminalization of hate crimes, including hate, misogynistic hate crimes, speak about silencing. They don't really reflect the silencing that's actually happen happening through hate speech to the other side. What do I mean by that? The abuse and harassment on street against women who provoke by just being women and out in the public, or the misrepresentation, exaggeration, ridicule, and threats of violence often levied against women on the internet or, or women who speak in public spaces. Uh, they are the acts of silencing. They're sometimes retributive. They're, they're supposed to punish for you being out, you having spoken, you having spoken on, on a particular topic with a particular form of forcefulness. Or they're meant to be preventative. Um, they need to prevent you from speaking in future instances. The message is you should think again before you enter a particular forum appear in a particular space, uh, voice your opinion. But I think we find it difficult to conceptualize this kind of silencing as a freedom of speech violation. Uh, this type of silencing by those who already have the right, of those who are, in, in a sense, only now making full use of it, as an attack on freedom of speech. We have trouble doing this. Because the historical roots of understanding of freedom of speech, as it is true of many civil and political rights, is that of a negative liberty. It is the idea that the state should not interfere at all with your right to speak. What is 
not considered is that not everybody is able, able to avail themselves of certain rights unless these rights are facilitated, unless there's almost like a positive attitude to rights. Uh, you have to have autonomy. You have to have the ability. You might need safe spaces. Um, so this more positive understanding of rights, I, rights, I think, only helps us to see silencing in this new light. So rather than just requiring the state, because human rights, as we know, are between the state and the individual, to not interfere, not curb your, your speech, we're requiring that the state facilitate or protect or enable uh, spaces of speech for, for everybody. So the abuse and harassment on the street and in the public sphere and on the internet can thus more widely be understood as the territorial protection of pre-existing speech, or the speech that is already has been acquired long ago by a privileged group against those who have traditionally not had the same access to freedom of speech in, in public, mainly women. But a similar thing applies for racial abuse, certainly. So it is this protection of privilege by those who have it against who might, who might seek, who might want it or seek it. And we do need to recognize these pre-existing inequalities in our assessment of free speech. And then we come to a conclusion that it is entirely legitimate to uh, act as a state and society to act against uh, hate speech, to prohibit it, uh, to classify it as a crime. I'll finish here, and I very much look forward to your questions. that useful uh, definition of misogyny, sexism, and gender bias, and also um, the, the really interesting argument on silencing as an abuse of the freedom of speech. Um, a really, really interesting discussion there. Our next speaker is Patricia. Patricia is a doctoral candidate here at Lincoln and a graduate teaching assistant in public international law, and she's the co-convener of the Oxford Public International Law Discussion Group and tutor in international law for visiting students in Oxford. Patricia has previously worked as an international arbitration associate at a Buenos Aires law firm, as lecturer in international and European law at Utrecht University, as research associate at the Netherlands Institute for the Law of the Sea, and as assistant attaché of the permanent mission of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to the United Nations of New York. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you very much, Heather, for your kind of introduction. I think it will be clear from that introduction that I'm actually not an expert on women's rights issue. I don't consider myself to be an expert. I'm just a general public international law specialist. And actually, it's kind of a confession, but the reason that I'm here is because I was just so outraged uh, and shocked by the fact that a man who had um, encouraged and boasted about sexual assaults and incited other men to do so and made a lot of public uh, hateful remarks about other women was elected president of the United States. So I simply couldn't resist to be here tonight to speak about this topic. So please forgive me for not being an expert on women's rights. Uh, I am grateful to note that my definition of what I consider to be misogyny uh, maps out perfectly with uh, Barbara's very helpful 
uh, definitions uh, scheme. So uh, at least I got that right. <laughs> um, so I will limit my talk to certain international legal aspects of um, the question whether misogyny should be a crime. Now before going into that, I do have one reservation to make, which is that if, when I worked for the Dutch Permanent Mission to the United Nations in New York, I did uh, some work that is relevant for today's topic, but I also signed uh, the standard foreign affairs secrecy agreement, so I just want to make sure that I state in public that everything I say here does not in any way imply <laughs> any interpretations by the Kingdom of the Netherlands and doesn't imply in any way that I might or might not have on a particular same point that I might raise here. So with that out of the way, let's get started. <laughs> So the United Kingdom, uh, along with 188 other states, is a party to the 1979 Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And this convention is known as CEDAW, and since it's kind of, of a mouthful, I will stick to CEDAW from now on. This treaty is enforced and binding on all the parties, including the UK. I am going to be a little bit more lawyerly than Barbara, but I will link it to public international law issues only, so uh, even if you're not an expert on UK law or even international law in general, hopefully you can still follow what I'm saying. So under Article 1, the discrimination against women is defined as any distinction, exclusion or restriction made on the basis of sex which has the effect or purpose of impairing or nullifying the recognition, enjoyment, or exercise by women on a basis of equality of men and women, of human rights and fundamental freedoms in the political, economic, social, cultural, civil, and other fields. And I should mention here for the non-lawyers that these human rights and fundamental freedoms include things like the right to life, but also the right to liberty and security of person, uh, the right to the highest attainable standard of mental and physical health, and the right not to be tortured or to face cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. Now, under Article 2, the parties to the treaty condemn discrimination against women in all its forms and undertake several things. Among those things, they undertake to adopt appropriate, and we will come back to the word appropriate, appropriate legislative and other measures, including sanctions, where appropriate, prohibiting all discrimination against women. They also agree to take appropriate measures, including legislation to modify or abolish existing laws, regulations, <coughs> customs, or, and practices which constitute discrimination against women. Now, I won't go through all the articles, so don't worry. I'm just going to say one more thing about this, which is that you have a general obligation under Article 24 of the Convention uh, that states parties will undertake to adopt all necessary measures at the national level aimed at achieving the full realization of the rights recognized in the treaty. Now, the question, of course, that I'm here to answer is whether these provisions tell us that misogyny or these some forms of misogyny should be criminalized. My interpretation is yes, they do. But let me clarify, and I think this maps onto what Barbara has said before, um, that I don't mean that things like uh, wolf whistling should be a criminal offense, although we could probably debate that. Um, I'm talking about expressions of misogyny in the sense of the hatred uh, of or contempt for women. When this misogyny takes place, 
I believe that it has the effect of, and here we go back to what I said about Article 1, the definition, uh, has the effect of impairing or nullifying the recognition, enjoyment, or exercise by women on a basis of equality of men and women, of their human rights and fundamental freedoms. So in that case, states have an obligation to take all appropriate measures, including through criminalization, if necessary, to protect these rights and freedoms. And not just in the political and economic sphere, but in the social, civil, uh, or cultural, or any other sphere. Now, we might still want to debate whether criminalization is indeed an appropriate measure and a necessary measure. And I will answer this question by having a look at a more particular issue of violence against women, because I think that the link between misogyny and violence against women makes criminalization appropriate and necessary. So, the problem with the issue of violence against women is that it's not explicitly mentioned in this convention, the CEDAW convention. And this seems to be a glaring omission if you take into account that according to the latest UN statistics, between uh, one and two in three women have faced gender-based physical or sexual violence. If we take the population, the world population we have today of seven and a half billion, that means that between 1.25 to 2.5 billion women and girls have faced uh, gender-based physical or sexual violence. Now these are pretty sobering numbers and states have come to realize this. So what they have done is they, they have adopted the declaration for the elimination of violence against women. And this declaration is notable not only because it um, calls on states to take certain measures to eliminate violence against women, but also because it defines what violence against women actually is. And I'm going to read out this definition because it will come in handy. So under Article 1 of this declaration, an internationally accepted definition of violence against women is any act of gender-based violence that results in, or is likely to result in, physical, sexual, or psychological harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts, coercion or arbitrary deprivation of liberty, whether occurring in public or in private life. Now, I don't really have the time here to go into the legal complexities of the ways in which this definition applies to CIA states parties, so I'm just going to mention two main things. The first thing is that there is a treaty body in charge of this CEDAW convention. We will call it the CEDAW committee. And that CEDAW committee has repeatedly affirmed that this definition and the topic of violence against women is actually covered by this convention. That means that the state parties to that convention are actually bound by the definition of violence against women and have to take measures to eliminate violence against women. This is, I know there are some lawyers here, and this is kind of complicated to explain, but if you're not a lawyer, you will just have to trust me, or you can raise an issue and we can discuss that. So the second issue brings me back to the question of whether misogyny should be criminalized. And my answer here would be that yes, it should be criminalized to the extent that it falls under the internationally accepted definition of violence against women. 
Now keep in mind that in the definition that I read out, it's not just um, violence against women, it's not just acts of gender-based violence, but also any acts that result in, or are likely to result in, physical, sexual, or psychological harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts. So it's not just the physical acts of violence, it's a far broader concept. So this is not just about uh, making benign compliments on a woman's appearance, the crime. This is about making the expression of hatred, of contempt of women, with the intent or with the result of inducing a psychological, uh, sexual or physical harm to women, purely because they are women, to make that uh, a crime. So, based on this reading of the convention and the instruments that have developed under international law, particularly to address violence against women, my conclusion is that yes, misogyny should be criminalized. Uh, I've commented only on misogyny and not on the other issues that, such as sexism and other, other gender-based um, problems that Barbara has already addressed. So my conclusion is that yes, misogyny should be criminalized from an international legal perspective. So there are still a lot of other issues under uh, national law and policy that I will not discuss, but I'm just giving you my opinion on what the international legal regime tells us that should appear. I do want to stress a similar point that what Barbara made, which is that the fact that the criminalization of misogyny is an appropriate and necessary measure doesn't mean that it's the only appropriate and necessary measure. I believe that there's a lot more that should be done to address the problem that we face. Misogyny has been normalized for many centuries or maybe even millennia, so there's no way that a simple criminalization will suddenly resolve, resolve this problem. And this is also recognized by the CEDAW Convention. It has several articles that discuss other me measures that states have to take. Um, I will mention just one of them, which is Article 5. <coughs> it states that states' parties shall take all appropriate measures to modify the social and cultural patterns of conduct of men and women with a view to achieving the elimination of prejudice and customs and all other practices which are based on the idea of the inferiority or the superiority of either sexes or on stereotype roles for men and women. So with this provision in mind, I'm just going to say that misogyny is not just a woman's problem, it's a human problem, and it's not just a lawyer's problem, it's a problem for all of us. So thank you. It's meant for debate, so. And of course, the questions. Um, we finally have Zoe Williams. Um, Zoe is an alumna of Lincoln College, and she originally read history and English here in the JCR. She's a highly accomplished journalist and col columnist who writes political commentary, interviews, and reviews. She is a regular contributor to The Guardian and The Spectator magazine, and is known for her articulate and humorous analysis of contemporary culture and regularly writes on feminism. Prior to meeting her current partner, 
Zoe wrote Diary of a Single Woman as a regular column for The Guardian, and since having children, she has published her first book, What Not to Expect When You're Expecting, which emerged out of her antenatal column. Um, she is currently up for Columnist of the Year at Glamour Magazine Awards, so... <laughs> yes, yeah, so everybody vote, vote for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. To lawyers. We're annoying to everybody, but we're really annoying to lawyers because we sort of think we sort of think it's an atmospheric thing whether something is illegal or not. It's like, well, you know, race hate is illegal, but it doesn't really mean anything. And you know, misogyny isn't illegal, but it doesn't really mean anything. And this I can imagine being extremely vexing to practitioners practitioners of the law because it does mean something and it means more than we realise or ever wanted to find out. So that's just a rider. The question I genuinely hadn't made my mind up on until two minutes ago, and I haven't felt so unprepared since the last time I was in Lincoln going to a tutorial. <laughs> I was on Milton. Um, I still don't know about paradise, but I think I have made my mind up on this. I think the problem is you'd struggle to make a case for what misogyny was. I really loved Barbara's definitions. They were completely understandable. They were immediately relatable. They made complete sense within the kind of scheme of what, what I, of the way I would use the word misogyny, sexism, and gender bias. But then I go back to kind of, kind of popular culture and mainstream culture, and I'm thinking immediately of the David Davis, Diana Abbott, um, if you're all reading. I don't know if you're all aware of this. I hope so. There's some people not but I'm going to go through it anyway. So, he tried to snog her, but although he didn't try and snog her, apparently, this is sexual assault, of course, so, or sexual harassment, at least, so that wouldn't, you don't need him in the law for that, unless he didn't do it, in which case it's, he's just a nuisance. He tried to hug her, or didn't try and hug her. He was being, he was gloating about Brexit, which isn't, strictly speaking, a gender issue, although I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure women will come off worse, as they always do when stupid decisions are made. He then texted his friend and said, I'm not blind. Um, and this was not just misogynistic, it was misogynoir, as we, as we always, always say on Twitter, which is that kind of in intersection between misogyny and racism, which certain kind of segments of white male society are particularly weirdly comfortable with. You know, there's a kind of weird unspoken agreement that whatever you think about women, you think that more about black women or women of mixed race. It's really, it's really strange and you do notice it more and more the minute you kind of name it. A bit like mansplaining. Nobody really understood mansplaining until somebody said the word mansplaining and everybody went, wow, okay, yes, I've seen that um, and I will see it again before I die. So you've got this situation. It, in my, to my mind, David Davis thinks that because Diane Abbott is not attractive to him, then she is a laughable character. Um, and that is, that I think signals some contempt for her. Um, you know, he wouldn't say, I don't fancy David Cameron, therefore he is contemptible. Um, and I do think this is problematic. 
this is, I simply wouldn't ever say, well, that's just a bit of gender bias. Obviously, he wouldn't try and kiss David Cameron. <laughs> um, but this is just a common garden gender bias. I do think it's problematic when people are held in contempt for their gender. And I do think this is very, very, very common across politics. You know, they have to, they have to kind of build such a skin and such an armour against this kind of the casual contempt, not just of the electorate, but also of their peers, um, that they become sort of, they become sort of, uh, not less than human, but separate from humans, because they cannot allow any vulnerability. It's, very, it's, it's really problematic for women in the public sphere. And it doesn't just deter women from entering public spaces. It changes the way women are in public spaces and kind of denatures them. And this is no laughing matter, even though it was quite funny on the front row. You know, I mean, it's funny against him. Um, could you, the, the problem I think is that if there were, if misogyny were illegal, then there would be, you would probably have people saying, well, that was a misogynistic remark. Somebody should bring a case against David Davis. And then somebody would say, well, this is for the campus Constitution Service to decide. Um, and they would say, well, okay, it probably was, so let's bring a case against him. And the case would collapse because it was a kind of private correspondence between two men who, who aren't accountable for their private correspondence. Um, and I think that's part, part of the problem. When you take the right of prosecution away from the victim and you, and you give it to the state, you end up with a lot of cases that are generated by the media. If you kind of take it, a correlative here is whenever Pete Doherty was stung by the, by the sun on taking coke, the police would always dutifully trudge up to his house to find out that he had half a gram of coke in his toilet. And then they'd dutifully bring a case against him which would dutifully be kicked out of court because it was trivial. Um, when you take the agency away from the victim and give it to the state, but the state has no particular interest in prosecuting it, you end up giving all the power to the tabloid newspapers. So you would give all you would give all the power of, you know, what did naming misogyny and then what it was to a kind of public, to a kind of random act of publicity. Because there is still a lot of self-policing on what women will complain about and what women won't complain about. I think that would extend into the, the, the problem I think, just from a kind of cultural point of view about making things illegal, is that you, you hand a lot of power to people who object to law without handing very much power to the people who object to misogyny. So the classic example here is um, the health and safety. Everybody was always talking about health and safety for mad. Um, everybody was always talking about when you went and you tried to take a dog into a pub in the 90s, they would go, I can't, afraid it's health and safety. Um, it's just, it was a kind of go-to excuse for people who wanted to say no to you, and it was a go-to excuse for people in Surrey who wanted to complain about politically correct people. But then, but the actual health and safety legislation was very precise. It was about whether or not you could put sodium in orange juice. It was very, very intricate and precise, and there was nothing in it that anybody who was interested in their health or their safety would have objected to. But instead, it became a trope for people to object to people who they thought they objected to, until you got that famous David Cameron speech, I think, in 2009, where he named a lot of health and safety legislation, which was fabricated by the Daily Express, really, um, who normally only fabricate the weather and Princess Diana's death circumstances, um, and 
gathered a, 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 a large amount of support for his, for his position, which was that the state was over-intervening in people's lives. Now, there was no relationship between what he was talking about and the actual real world. There was no relationship at all. But he'd managed, and this has been really accelerated in recent times, he'd managed to yoke a kind of phrase that people knew that had interrogated to a point about an over-invasive state. And he'd done that because the sense of a legal architecture was kind of oppressive to people in a way that they found atmospherically convincing, even, though, even if there were no kind of factual underpinning to make it convincing. And I think that would happen if you made misogyny a crime. The truth of it is, the, the kind of, the sharp end of misogyny, the domestic violence, the harassment, the sexual violence, the random sexual violence, the intimate sexual violence, is already illegal. Um, the, you know, the stalking is, is illegal. The, threats of the death threats, the rape threats on Twitter, this, this stuff is already illegal. So if you've made misogyny as a kind of umbrella term illegal, I think you, you would never be able to put a tariff on that because the range of crimes are so great. So you end up with the misogyny tag only applying to the things that weren't already illegal under existing law. So that would be things like giving you a dirty look. Um, and then that would that would in turn undermine misogyny as a concept. Now, I also think, and this is a more difficult position, that there are misogynistic iterations that are just people who hate you. And it's actually not illegal. It's not illegal for one person to hate another. Even if they hate you for reasons that aren't related to you as a person, it's, it's problematic, but you kind of delegate your own agency, your own kind of selfhood, if you want that to be prosecuted by... You, 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 if you delegate that to, the, to a kind of state agency to prosecute on your behalf, you undermine your own ability to respond in your own way. Um, and that, I think, is difficult for women, and that kind of puts us in a difficult position. So there are kind of two analogies here. One of them is that, you know, for a long time, I think you do notice that there are, for a long time, race hate has been illegal in a way that misogyny isn't. Mm. And you do notice that there are things that you can say about women in public life and generally and as kind of a species that you wouldn't be allowed to say about any particular race. Um, now, that, and that's always been, there's always been a question mark over whether that is related to the legal structure or not, but it's, it's always been marked. Two observations I've made about it are, firstly, the ability to say things about women is, doesn't necessarily reflect an ability to be worse, to, to be more sexist than you are racist. So I think if you look at the kind of social, the, the long-term social trends, it's been, racism is much more pronounced in, in holding people back than sexism is and yet racism is a much more taboo thing to express in public. So I think it's, it would be untrue to say that creating legal architecture stamps out the prejudice itself. Because if that were so, then racism would be much less pronounced than sexism. And I don't think it is. I mean, it's, it's plainly not. It, it kind of any metric you take, it's harder to be a single woman than it is to be a white woman. It's, you know, these things are 
much more subtle and pervasive than a simple kind of iteration of law can address. The other thing is, and you really find this as a kind of guardian, on the guardian comments board, they have a number of things that you're not allowed to say, right? So you're not allowed to attack the writer personally, you're not allowed to attack any other people in the piece personally, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to make sexist or racist or disabled or or any kind of prejudicial comments, you're not allowed to, basically you're not allowed to be a dick, but they find a way, that's what's weird. They, the people who are really determined to just yank your chain will find a way. And they almost, the kind of, the rules are almost a challenge to them to find a way to insult you that doesn't contravene the rules. And I think that, I think of that in terms of like all the kind of contrarian literature, the spiked online, the alt-right sites, the kind of sun and their anti-page anti three campaign, all the kind of broad brush, pro-sexist, anti-PC movements of the past 15 years, I think have been generated by an attempt to shut them down. It's like a kind of advanced, advanced process of trolling. The more you try and introduce structure to what's acceptable and what isn't, the more they try and evade and subvert it. Um, which isn't to say, don't bother, but it is to say, maybe we can think more intelligently about how to address misogyny than simply to say, it's bad, stop doing it. So I think, broadly speaking, and I mean, you know, I, this is even worse than a tutorial. I have ended the thing, still not decided. But I think, broadly speaking, just my observation about the kind of, about the effectiveness of what is illegal already and the pervasiveness of what people can get away with even given the existing law makes me think that this isn't the way to do it. But that doesn't mean that if anybody wanted to make it illegal, I wouldn't support them. <laughs> <laughs>
And there's a list of things that's currently covered, which includes race, disability, religion, and even sexual orientation, but actually not sex or gender. Mm -hmm. okay? And I think that's perhaps why we're having this discussion. And there's a threshold as well. So the, the um, speech has to be, or acts have to be threatening, abusive, intended to harass, alarm, or distress. Mm. So we are actually talking about an elevated threshold uh, of, of behavior. Doesn't, I mean, it's a little bit yeah. of a reaction to you. It doesn't still negate some of the worries and some of the issues that you raised. But I just, perhaps before we actually start a, a discussion and open it to the floor, I thought this might be helpful to put out there. I mean, I think it's really interesting because if you look at, I was, I was reading something about, you know Gamergate? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about Gamergate, right? Yeah, you're young. Of course you know. Okay, so um, that kind of really lifted the lid on a kind of new toxicity of gender hatred online, which I didn't realise. And I've read since a lot about the gener that kind of the building of an alt-right community has as much has as, has its kind of footing in among kind of in internet nerds and gamers and that kind of community the kind of and they and they are anarchists they're not political at all they they're in, they're focused on destruction so they kind of joined this alt right movement because it's destructive and toxic not because they necessarily want a republican president any more than they want any president um, and actually i did think that we are in a new world, we're in a completely new world to the time when the hate speech legislation came out because nobody was saying, I'd like to chop your head off and have sex with your neck in 1999. I mean, they just weren't, it just wasn't, it just, just wasn't the way you spoke to people, um, or at least not in public. Um, so, I mean, I, I do feel that maybe you're right that... that when we were making hate speech legislation, I say we, I was not, nothing to do with it. Um, but we, were, we weren't, we sort of thought that a lot of the gender stuff was already sorted, and it's not. I think I would also like to comment on the point you made about the fact that the most serious forms of misogyny are already criminalized. Mm. Because I, I think the link you with the hate crime is interesting, because what you see as I have already said repeatedly, I'm not an expert, but I'm going to say this anyway. So it seems that gender is simply added as a category to the hate crimes. So it's, it's sending a signal to women, look, we're taking this seriously. Right, 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 right. And it might affect you know, the self-policing that goes on with mm -hmm. women, where mm -hmm. you're not constantly reporting all the things that happen to you. And it might send a signal like, look, this is not acceptable. Please report it. So that's just one comment I would make to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that might be another aspect. I mean, I just wonder, I just feel like it's really difficult to get women to report really major things that happen to them, like yeah. being kidnapped. I mean, you know, women, there is a huge amount of self-policing about what you'll report and what you won't. And, if, and I wonder how much the architecture of legitimacy actually helps. Yeah, I think that's something the know. three of us have in common, <laughs> that we all mentioned, like, law is only one tiny yeah, 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 aspect no, of no, this, yeah, yeah. and we can't solve everything. Yeah. Yeah. And especially criminal law can't yeah. solve anything. Either. Mm -hmm. so I think we're all in agreement on that. <laughs> so. yeah. um, I think it's actually worth mentioning the original, um, the Nottinghamshire police force. It is the police force. It's not like the CPS that have put this through, it's the police force. 
which actually means when you look at how it's set up, it's a means of reporting and noting crimes. It's not, it's not about prosecuting crimes. So it gives women the chance to report a crime which they see as sexist or misogynist, and it may then be investigated as so, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be prosecuted as so. But it also extends the, um, the sort of care packages or the support packages that might be put forward to someone who has received racist abuse to women who have received sexist abuse. Um, but it is not yet, well, it's not yet extended beyond Nottinghamshire, um, but it is also not yet and legal operators. If I may briefly comment on that, so this, this is where you see that uh, the way it has been implemented would be a perfect example of how to implement the obligations under the CEDAW treaty that I've been discussing, mm -hmm. because uh, the states that are parties to it have an obligation to report to the treaty body to explain what kind of measures they're taking, mm -hmm. uh, what the statistics are, what kind of steps they're taking, and you need the statistics, you need the facts for that. So what do you think about the Istanbul Convention then? Do you think that's... So, as far as I understand, not being an expert, but so, so the United Kingdom has uh, signed that treaty but not ratified it. So, under international law, that means it's bound by the object and purpose of the treaty, so it shouldn't take actions that go against it, but it hasn't actually said, okay, this treaty is binding for us, we, we accept all the obligations. So, I can't comment on uh, what the UK is or is not doing under it. I do know that that treaty... Uh, has at least the same protections and more explicit and more far-reaching yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, obligations to combat violence against women. Mm. So. I mean, I guess my question is, and, I, and I'm, I'm asking everybody this, is that, you know, we are in an unusual time when everything's going backwards. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've got Philip Davis in Parliament trying to filibuster a domestic violence bill. You know, it's really extraordinary. I've never known a time when it was so acceptable to be so bigoted and I don't know whether the answer is I don't know whether the answer is to become more like ourselves or to become you know when I say more like ourselves to kind of try and, try and enshrine more of our liberal values in law or try and do things differently I genuinely don't know what the answer is uh, Can we thank our panellists Barbara, for